Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to the book of Lamentations, chapter 2. Lamentations, chapter 2. It's tucked away there in the Old Testament. Right after Jeremiah, you'll find Lamentations. This is week two on series through the book of Lamentations. We'll be going back to the Gospel of Luke here sometime in April, end of April, and uh, we look forward to that as well. But now we want to turn our attention to Lamentations chapter 2. Let's pray together and ask for the Lord to guide us in his word. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that it is true. Father, as we consider the second chapter of Lamentations this morning, we ask for your Holy Spirit to attend our hearts and our minds. Father, as we wade through a very heavy and dark book, would you show us how even today we can glean from it that we might know you better, that we might cling to you more firmly, and that we might hope in you more fully. God, would you do your work in us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, back in August of 2017, there was a rare phenomenon that took place in our country. From Oregon to South Carolina, we experienced, or at least sections of our country experienced, a total solar eclipse. It's the first time it happened from coast to coast in some 99 years. You remember all the hype about it. People actually drove to parts of the country, even to the Holy Land of Tennessee where you could see it actually in total. People actually drove to places where they can see this total solar eclipse. We saw a partial eclipse here, but there was this section of the country that could see an entire total solar eclipse. Right in the middle of the day, it grew dark. That's what an eclipse is. It's when the moon covers partially or totally the sun's disk in the sky so that you either experience a partial or total eclipse. It limits temporarily the full effect of the sun's light upon the earth. And on that particular day, for a part of the United States, from coast to coast, people were able to experience the effect of the sun's light being limited totally for a few minutes right in the middle of the day. So you think about solar eclipse, think about when it goes dark in the middle of the day, it's fascinating, isn't it? Like it's a weird thing at 2 p.m. for it to be dark. It's fitting for daylight savings time Sunday, right? Think about more light, you know? And as you think about just, the, just the, the fascination of it all, when the day goes dark, it's fascinating. But when you apply that to your life, when life goes dark, it's not so fascinating. It's really paralyzing, isn't it? Certain moments and seasons of our life can feel like an eclipse. It seems as if God is no longer present. God's no longer there. We know that life in a fallen world is often marked by hard things. So what do we do when life goes dark? I think it all begins with getting our view of God right. As heavy and dark as the book of Lamentations can be for us to read, 
I think underlying this book, underneath it all, is this call, not only for God's people in that day and time, but I think for a call for us today. It's, it's, it's a call for us to see God in a way that we are prone to forget. And as we see God for who he truly is, I think we are led then to respond to our sufferings, to our darkness in different ways. One such way is through lament. As we think about what is lament, lament is this grace that God gives to cry out to him in our deepest grief and our deepest sorrows, but yet in a way that clings to him in hope. Lament enables us to voice our deepest struggles and grief to God while at the same time reminding us where our hope must rest. Lamentations chapter two continues detailing the carnage of chapter one. When you read this lament, and most will say that chapter two is the darkest chapter of the entire book, you think, well, how could it get any darker than last week? When you read Lamentations 2, you, you may come away thinking there's not much hope. In fact, if you were the writer of Lamentations, it, it may have felt that way to you when you were voicing these sorrows. Indeed, chapter 2 is a dark chapter. It's, it's, it's the total eclipse of the book. So what does this chapter help us see about the darkness? What does this chapter help us see about our response when life grow, goes dark? I mean, chapter two helps us in several ways. And I want us to walk through this chapter in three stages as we consider what it says. And then at the end, I want us to draw out some important lessons about the grace of lament specifically as we reflect upon our response to the darkness. We're gonna see, first of all, the reality of judgment. We're gonna see the depths of grief, and then we're gonna see the appeal to pray. Those are the three stages of the chapter, the three ways that we're gonna walk through this chapter together, the reality of judgment, the depths of grief, and the appeal to pray. And then after all of that, we're gonna see what all of this teaches us about the grace of lament, some lessons we can take away there at the end. Let's begin with the reality of judgment. Chapter two is the start of a new poem, a new lament. And as I said, it's even darker than the first. Let me read the first 10 verses. The reality of judgment. Verse one, how the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord is swallowed up without mercy, all the inhabitants of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe. And he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes, in the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. 
He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath. And in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunken to the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women in Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. Again, we come into this first few verses of chapter 2, and we see here the writer is speaking in the third person, referring to the disastrous events that took place in Jerusalem. But notice that these are events described as God's doing. How the Lord, it says in verse 1, in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. Just listen again to all the activity attributed to God. This is the activity of God. He has cast down. He has not remembered. He has swallowed up. He has broken down. He has brought down to the ground. He has cut down. God has withdrawn his right hand. He has burned like a flaming fire. He has set his bow like an enemy. He has killed all who were delightful. He was the one that poured out his fury. He became like an enemy. He swallowed up Israel. He swallowed up its palaces. He laid in ruins its strongholds. He multiplied mourning and lamentation. He laid waste to his booth. He laid in ruins its meeting place. He made Zion forget festival and Sabbath. He spurned king and priest. He scorched his altar. He disowned his sanctuary. He delivered into the hands of the enemy the walls of her palaces. He raised a clamor. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand. He ruined and broken the bars of the gates and the law is no more. See, this was the Lord's doing. This was the darkest day Jerusalem had known. And it's all attributed here in chapter 2 in this poem in the first 10 verses to God's doing. Yes, we know from chapter 1, it was ultimately the result of Judah's sin, Jerusalem's sin against God, their unrepentant rebellion against him, being called prophet after prophet to turn, to turn, to turn, being told that this was indeed what would take place, that if they did not turn from their idolatry, if they did not turn from their sin, this would in fact take place And it did. God no longer fought for his people. He fought against them. What does all this tell us? This day, this reality of judgment. Well, obviously it tells us something about God. Remember earlier I said for us, if we go through those moments when life goes dark, when suffering is at its worst, when we are at the bottom. We must, we must get our view of God right. Obviously this chapter reminds us that God takes our sin serious. 
I think it tells us that we should never presume that God will protect his people at all costs. He disciplines those whom he loves. It's not as if we are somehow exempt because we're the people of God, that we're exempt from some kind of justice or discipline from the hand of God. Now, yes, Israel was a unique possession in the Old Testament as his special people. I think that we can still understand God's view of sin. And I think we can all relate to those moments when we think we're untouchable. I think Israel had, had been living that in some, for, for a long period of time. But here's the thing, while God is amazingly patient, God is amazingly patient, we know that his discipline is sure. Again, I think one of the things this, a heavy passage like this does is it pushes us, it forces us, it confronts us with the reality of who God is. And lament helps us then to posture our hearts in a way to see God in his righteousness, in his glory. Notice even as the poet here, the writer, whether it was Jeremiah or some other writer, as, the, as he's unpacking the utter destruction and desolation of Jerusalem, he is at the same time affirming God's position and power. Do, do you see that? I mean, this is a complaint. This is a lament. This is an acknowledgement that all has gone wrong, and yet God is the one that's caused it. He's expressing here his doctrine of God. This is theology on display, pretty radically so, right? When you think about this is, this is suffering at its worst, and yet what we're seeing here come from the heart of the writer is a robust understanding of who God is. Friends, it's a good text to push us to consider what our view of God is. You heard me say last week that we we tend to try to tame God. That's our tendency. We, we try to bring him down and dress him up nice and pretty, kind of keep him close, and, and we, we want him to be what we think he ought to be. When here in Lamentations, we are confronted headlong into the reality of the fullness of who he is in his holiness and in his justice, his righteousness. It's a good text to remind us to ask the question, who is God? See, it's easy to lose sight of God's holiness. And I'll just ask you the question, how big is God's holiness to you? Just how holy is he? What, what happens is, it, it, we all do this. I mean, you can't read a passage like this and think, whoa, whoa. And, and be a bit bothered by it. Like if you can read Lamentations chapter two and not be bothered that God did this, you're just super special. Good for you. Like this is troublesome. How can a holy God wipe his people out like this? As here we see the reality through judgment of the holiness of God. Reality of judgment points us there. 
But you also see the depths of grief. In verse 11, the writer moves from describing the situation in the third person to speaking in the first person. Let me read down through verse 19 or so. Shifts, first person, my eyes are spent with weeping, my stomach churns, my bile, liver, the seat of our emotions, is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what, com- to what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen you for, or excuse me, your prophets have seen for you, you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you, and they hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city? that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry. We have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we long for. Now we have it, we see it. The Lord has done what he had purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the right or the might of your foes. See the depths of grief here, don't you? The writer moving from the third person now to the first person is just pouring out his heart. It it, it seems that is, we don't know exactly why there was the shift there from third person to first person. It, It may suggest that the writer can no longer contain himself as he's considering the first 10 verses. As he's poured out his heart in lament of all of these things, it's as if the writer can no longer contain himself and he bursts out with uncontrollable grief. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. His liver, his bile is cast to the ground. Again, it's a description of the seat of one's emotions. He's truly shattered over the fall of this city. Whether it's the ruins of the walls or the temple or the cries of the children in the streets that are literally starving to death, Ryder can no longer take it. Friends, one of the things you'll find in the book of Lamentations and in Lament, you don't only see a recognition of what got them here. Their sin, God's judgment, discipline against their sin, unrepentant sin. But we also find that true lament also includes the deep expression of one's pain. The depths and horrors of Jerusalem's status is incomprehensible. Yes, Judah deserved to be held accountable for their idolatry. But if you're honest, you put yourself in the shoes of this writer, how can you 
justify innocent children starving to death as a consequence. Even thousands of years removed from this event, we can feel the shock and horror of that. The writer goes on and expresses his grief and even his own inadequacy to bring comfort to the people. If we see that in verse 13. What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? Your your ruin is so great, I, I have nothing. It's as vast as the sea. The writer goes on and expresses that. And I think, again, the point of all all of this is that the destruction is so widespread, even impacting the most innocent of those in society, it seemed as if all hope was lost. This great city, verse 15, this perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth is no more. Destruction is total. But again, we see even in the midst of this grief being expressed, the poet seems to get again at the root cause of all of this. He he seems to be going back to to unpack the the reason for all of this happening. And it says in verse um, 14, your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They've misled you. Beneath all of this was a deep-seated spiritual problem Now they find themselves in utter ruin, devastated, and they're the laughingstock of their enemies. But look at verse 17. In the midst of his grief, the poet understands that God was simply doing what he said he would do. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word. God's not like a lot of us parents where we just we like to threaten our kids, right? If you, don't do, if you don't stop doing that, I'm going to get you. We say that 20 times because they figure out they're really not going to get me. Right? They, can, they can read right through that. Bad parenting 102 right there. But God, when he makes a promise, he keeps his word. Even, when, even though he's very patient, he keeps his word. And so what we see here is that the writer through this lament, he's using lament as the vehicle by which he's able to express the depths of his pain, complaints to God in honesty. I mean, this is raw honesty. He's just pouring out his heart. And yet, there seems to be the recognition that God can be trusted. And we've not got quite there yet, although you see glimpses of it. He's affirming in the midst of all of this chaos and carnage and pain and and just incomprehensible destruction, there's there's that statement, the Lord has done what he said. He's faithful to his word. He told us and he did it. He warned us. I'm reminded of Job. sort of compare Job and Lamentations. There's similarities and a lot of differences, but I, I love this statement from Job. Remember, Job underwent so much suffering. The difference with Job is that he was righteous. Jerusalem was destroyed because of their unrighteousness. Job endured suffering even though he was righteous. And in Job chapter 13, verse 15, Job says, though he slay me, 
I will hope in him. Yet, I will argue my ways to his face. Friends, I think that's one of that. If, if you had to pick out like a biblical definition of what true lament is, that's it. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet, I'm gonna argue my ways to his face. I'm gonna be honest with the Lord. I'm gonna complain. I'm going to cry out. I'm going to express the depths and deep the, 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 the ruin of my own heart and soul in the midst of whatever's going on, and yet I'm going to hope in him. Though he slay me, I will hope. See, it's in the midst of grief and sorrow that we can cry out from the depths of our emotions and yet cling firmly to the Lord. Again, think about this scene for a moment. The pain expressed here comes from an understanding that all of this happened by the command of God in response to the people's ongoing, unrepentant rebellion against him. They become idolaters. And so God raises up Babylon to be the instrument of his judgment because of their sin and rebellion. And so God is no longer intervening on their behalf. He is unleashing his anger and discipline against their sin. Now think of how that, in some ways, connects us to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Because God would do something like this again, but it would be much different. God would, in fact, pour out his just, his righteous anger against the sin of his people. But this time, at the cross, in Jerusalem, he would pour that anger upon his own son. He would do it at the expense of his own self. See, when Jesus died on the cross, he endured the full justice of God against sin on our behalf. He too experienced the, the temporary eclipse of God's presence as he endured the greatest judgment against sin the world has ever known. It grew dark that day on that Good Friday. Friends, if, if we find the scene disturbing in Lamentations, and you should, if you don't find it disturbing, you're disturbed, <laughs> right? I mean, this is disturbing. But if you, if you stay there, if, like, if you just like, I, I can't get beyond it, I mean, it should affect you, it should disturb you, but, but you should move past that disturbance to see something fuller and greater. But if you find this scene disturbing in Lamentations, then you're gonna also find the cross disturbing. What we find at the cross, though, is not merely a leveling of judgment against sin, we, we find the expression and demonstration of mercy being granted to the sinner. Justice and mercy meeting there in Christ upon the cross as he dies for the punishment and judgment against sin once and for all. And yet mercy in that it went upon Christ and not upon us. Friend, if you're here today and you, you're not following Christ, you're not following Jesus, you would not consider yourself a Christian, I would tell you that is your hope. When you consider the holiness of God in Lamentations, 
The fact that he would not even spare his own people shows you just how holy he is. And the truth of the matter is, is that we will all stand before him and give accounts, and yet none of us are righteous on our own. We all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We all deserve, the wages of sin is death. We all deserve to be separated from God forever and ever because of our rebellion, because of our own sin. We deserve the judgment and righteous anger of God against our sin, and yet God sent his son into the world one who, Jesus, the one who lives the, the, the perfect life we all should have lived. He, he, he never sinned. And yet he goes to a cross and he bears the full weight of, of wrath upon himself for those who would hope in him. So friend, today, that is your hope. If you're not a Christian, that you would put your faith in Jesus. Don't put your faith in yourself or in something else out there somewhere. Put your faith in Jesus. He is the only way you will escape that sure judgment. Jerusalem endured a lot. And we know that the remaining people, those who remained, were taken into exile and they would remain there for 70 years. Really, it would be a whole nother generation that would come and resettle Jerusalem and rebuild. But I just remind you, friends, there's a judgment that's coming that will be far greater. If you think chapter two of Lamentations is heavy, there's a judgment coming that's worse than this infinitely worse, eternally worse, unless you're in Christ, your hope, your rescue, your redeemer. Put your hope in him. And friend, you will be spared that judgment. See the depths of grief poured out, but then you also see the appeal of prayer. Verse 18, he says, their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night. At the beginning of the night, watch this. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger, the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see with whom you have dealt thus. Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young, women, or my young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day. My terrors on every side and, the day, and on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. You know, as you find your way closer to the end of this chapter, we move from a very detailed recounting of God's response to the people's sin. Verses 1 through 10, we've seen that, how God did all of these things in response to their sin. We move from that recounting of this horrific scene to the depths of sorrow that's poured out in the middle, now to, to how it's being poured out in prayer to the Lord. They had rebelled against God and they had paid the price. But now, having been humiliated and humbled, they are in a position to listen, to see God again, to see him for who he truly is and to cry out to him for help. You see that in verses 18 and 19, their heart cried out to the Lord. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite, cry out. 
Arise, verse 19, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. The writer hears the people crying out to the Lord in verse 18. And then in verse 19, he urges Lady Zion, he urges Jerusalem to do the same, to cry out. Friends, this is no mere suggestion. This is not a, hey, I know things have kind of gone bad. You, you might think about praying. This is not that. It's an impassioned plea. Cry out to the Lord. What's your other option at this moment? Cry out to the Lord. This, this is no mere suggestion. It's a, it's a plea. And you see this tension back and forth in, in lament. You see this, Lord, how could you have done this? Lord, how could you have let this happen? Lord, you're, you're letting the enemy rejoice over your people. How could this be? Why is this happening? This is horrible. My stomach churns, my heart faints, yet I'm crying out to you. You did what you said you would. My faith is in you. You're a God that can be trusted. I'm crying out to you. Who, to, who, to whom shall I go? Think about that. He is counseling the people of God to cry out to the very one who brought the disaster in the first place. Again, where else would she go? The God who gives justice is indeed the God who also extends mercy. Yes, this is the God this God is the one you've turned against and he has responded to your rebellion accordingly. But now you must cry out to him. This is what lament does. Pouring out all our grief to the one who is the source sometimes of our own trouble, but yet he is the source of our hope. You see that begins to happen. Verse 20, look, O Lord, and see. And sometimes that is the best prayer we can pray. Look, O Lord, and see. I have no words, but look upon your servant and see. And that is a prayer of faith. One of the things that judgment will bring, particularly in this situation, one of the things that, that the disciplinary hand of God brings against sin is to reorient the heart to where it should have been in the first place. Lamentations is a dark scene, but it's not dark because God has a dark side. It's dark because sin is dark. It's in the midst of that paralyzing grief though that we learn to see and trust again. Lamentations is a lament over God's judgment against sin because of the the comprehensive nature of this judgment. But friends, we know there are many dark times in our lives that may or may not have to do with specific sin in our life. We talked about that last week, how this context, it had to do with their rebellion, with their sin, but sometimes life in a sinful world, that every bad thing 
that happens in life may not necessarily be attributed to some specific sin in your life, but every bad thing in life is attributed to sin and to the fallenness of this world. And lamentations is the language God gives his people to cry out to him in hope and in trust, even when we don't understand it, even when we're angry at God. I want us to consider four lessons on lament as we conclude our time together. Four lessons on lament. First, lament does not wait for resolution. When you think about the chaos of life, the sufferings of this present time, the sorrows, the grief, the mourning, lament is something that doesn't wait for a resolution or for peace again. Lament is something that we do when we are in the depths of sorrow. The writer here pours out his heart and how he feels with great honesty. He doesn't wait to see what may happen to Jerusalem. It's within view of the destroyed gates and the burning temple that he cries out with these laments. He doesn't wait to see what may happen. He he acts in the moment of grief. Lament is a way that we bring our grief to God. Again, to quote Mark Vrogup in Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, a book about lament. Some of you ladies will be reading and discussing. It's a recommended book to anyone. He really walks through the entirety of Scripture and shows us this important grace. He says, Lament turns to God in prayer, vocalizes the complaint, asks boldly, and chooses to trust while uncertainty hangs in the balance. Let me read that again. What does lament do? Lament turns to God in prayer, vocalizes the complaint, asks boldly, and chooses to trust while uncertainty hangs in the balance. Lamentations teaches us and shows us that in the depths of our pain, we must let our cries to God be known. But friends, these cries are not without a proper foundation, which leads me to point number two. Lament doesn't wait for a resolution. Number two, lament clings firmly to God's sovereignty. Often in the midst of our suffering, there is, again, not a direct correlation as to why we may be suffering. Some pastors would like to get up and tell you, well, this happened to this city because it's sinful. That's just foolish. We don't know sometimes. We don't know what happens or why things may happen the way they happen in life. Sometimes we can see, oh, well, that was dumb of me. I should have, there's obviously, obviously the consequences of my sin. But sometimes it's not so obvious, is it? It's often in the midst of our suffering that there may not be this direct correlation as to why we may be suffering like we are or like we see here in Lamentations even. But lament helps us to voice our cries to God with a sense of confidence. We're going to get to chapter 3 next week, Lord willing. You're going to see this more clearly. 
But even here in the darkest chapter of the book, you, you see a recognition that God is sovereign. He's done all of this. He did what he said he would do, verse 17. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. Therefore, I'm crying out to him. It's often in the midst of suffering and even after that we find it difficult, if not impossible, to see the bigger picture and purposes of God. Side note. Let me talk to two different kinds of people. This is not in the notes, so let me just do this. Side note, when people are grieving, those who are grieving, let me speak to you, you should cry out to God in the depths of your pain to him. You should do that. You should be honest with him. You should be raw with him. You should be open and transparent. He knows your heart anyway. You just cry out to God. You should do that trusting that he is good and that he is sovereign, even though you don't get it. You may never get it. He never responds in the cries to lamentations. Job is never given a reason in Job as to why God did what he did and allowed what he allowed in Job's life. Not one time was Job given a reason. And yet he trusted in him. So those of you who are grieving and those of you who are going through depths of sorrow, yes, cry out to God and trust in him as the foundation of your own life and soul because he is your only hope, even if you don't get what he's doing. And those of you who maybe are around grieving people, it's not at that time that you should say to them, well, God has a bigger purpose in mind, you know. And if they're a follower of Jesus, they know that and they do need to be reminded of that at some point. So use wisdom, use wisdom in reminding people of what is true. Sometimes the best thing that we can do amidst grief is just be quiet, be present and be quiet. And when they begin to ask, you can point them. And when it's appropriate, you can point them that God is good and he can be trusted. They need to hear that at some point, just be wise and when they, when, when you share that with them. Lament clings firmly to God's sovereignty. That's one of the blessings of, of a church family, right? Is, is that we need to be reminded of that. We, we should encourage each other with those words at appropriate times. You see, lament helps us move from being paralyzed in our suffering to, be, to being in a posture of trust amidst our suffering. The writer sees clearly God's hand in Jerusalem's downfall and it's baffling and it's devastating and yet he still cries out to God. Lament clings firmly to God's sovereignty. Number three, lament reorients us to the right source of comfort. So far, Jerusalem and the writer here have not been able to find comfort. There's none to be found. But toward the end of chapter two, I think the cries to God show that the writer and, and, and Lady Zion are on the right trail. Think about that, friends. Sometimes life can be so paralyzing and devastating that comfort seems elusive. Like, it, it, I don't know where it's at. Like, I, I just, I'm not comforted. And I think though we may find ourselves in seasons of evasive comfort, we need not think the Lord will never supply it again. 
because the Lord is a great comforter. I think this is an important lesson for us in the West, especially because we, idol- we make comfort an idol. We think we must have comfort at all costs. And so we make it an idol. And when the least little thing is stripped from us, we panic. Sometimes being stripped of comfort helps us see reality in a way that we don't see when we're insulated by temporary false comforts. Or sometimes being stripped of certain worldly comforts in this life helps push us to put our hope in the true source of comfort. The people of God have been clinging to wrong comforts. They've been clinging to the wrong things and the Lord strips them of everything so that they would indeed find him as their comfort again. Number four, lament helps our faith. Lament helps our faith. One theme that's loud and clear in the book of Lamentations is that sin has broken us and God is the only one that can make it right. God had ransacked his people due to their unrepentant hearts and though they were grieved with pain at what God had brought about because of their foolishness, they still cried out to him. They still, God used this to, to, to point them, to reorient them, to, to, to look to him in faith again. It's that prayer of Job, right? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Sovereignty, faith, all of that right there in that one, one sentence. Brothers and sisters, you may encounter gut-wrenching moments and seasons in your life but it's through the grace of lament that you can still trust, you can still express hope, you can still cry out to the one and the only one that can truly help. You know, if you had an opportunity to be in the right location on that August day in 2017, you'd have experienced total darkness, right in the middle of the day. But you know, friends, that darkness didn't mean at all that the sun had disappeared, did it? It was merely blocked momentarily. Friends, our suffering can often be like that eclipse. It can often feel as if God has disappeared entirely. Where is he? But he hasn't. We know just around the corner And I know that may be days or even years, but just around the corner, the light will shine again. Some of you even now today may feel the darkness intensely. You've been living in an eclipse. But listen, friend, if you are in Christ, you can be confident that the light will shine again, that God has not moved, that he is present, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing the glory that would be revealed in us. And even if you never feel the fullness of the sun like you once did before, you can know that there's coming a day, friends, there's coming a day when death, devastation, and difficulty will be no more. So how do you walk through darkness? 
One of the things that the Lord has given us is lament. You cry out and you trust. Let's pray. Lord, we acknowledge that we live in an, a world that is often unpredictable. Lord, we live with the reality of our own sin, our own lack of faith. We live with the reality every day, Lord, that this world seems so dark and so broken. And Father, you are right to hold sinners accountable. You are right to bring your justice to bear, to bring your righteousness to bear against our sin. You are right to do so because you are holy. Father, as we feel the weight and the burden and the horrors of this present day of suffering and chaos, Lord, would you remind us, like through the midst of it all, that you are still there, that you are the one to whom we must cry out, the one in whom we must put our faith and hope. Father, there is no other. Father, even though you may slay us at times, it's my prayer that our hope would still rest fully and firmly in you, that we would find you a source of strength and security, even when the wind and the waves ravage against us. God, would you move in us to help us to see you more fully and faithfully? Lord, if anything else from Lamentations 2, would you just remind us of how big and glorious and holy you truly are? and how right you are to respond to sin, and how right you are in keeping your word. Therefore, O oh Father, would you help us to cling to you in faith. Thank you, Father, for giving us this book to remind us of that truth today. Thank you for the hope that we do have in Christ. It's in his name we pray.